Welcome to the Talent Pool Podcast. I'm Alan Kaplan, your host and founder and CEO of Kaplan Partners, a retained executive search and board advisory firm headquartered in Philadelphia. The goal of the Talent Pool Podcast is to inform and educate on leading issues of the day in corporate governance, CEO succession, and executive talent strategy. My guest today is Ruby Chandy. Ruby is a board member of a number of well-known companies, including DuPont, Amatech, and Flowserve, all of which are traded on the New York Stock Exchange. She's an expert in corporate governance, and prior to her career in board service, Ruby served in a number of executive roles in companies like Paul Corporation, Dow Chemical, Roman Haas, Thermo Fisher Scientific. Welcome, Ruby. Thank you, Alan. Let's dive into the talent pool. I want to talk a little bit about your transition from the C-suite to the boardroom, along with a little bit of background history in terms of how and why you kind of made that evolution. As you mentioned, I've worked for a number of different companies, and I've worked primarily in the the industrial sectors, but also through a couple of experiences in the life science and and medical technology sectors. And one of the reasons maybe that I've moved around a little bit is because I I love businesses. I end up with businesses that are troubled. And of course, I get stressed about it. And (laughs) and one, you know, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of turnaround. But I love that energy of making change, you know, coming up with a new team sometimes or at least developing the team that I have of together developing a new strategy and then starting to make that strategy happen across different functions different regions, different types of people, uh, different customers. So I, I do love the energy and the pace of that. And I have to admit that once a business is fixed and starts to run in a pretty stable way that I start looking for a new challenge. And I mentioned that because when you asked me how I transitioned to board service, I actually did that uh, in the late uh, 2000s and I did it Um, it was somewhat unplanned. It was one of those times that I was a little bored. You know, I was just completing a chief marketing officer assignment at Thermo Fisher Scientific, and they had been exciting work during that time with a big merger, a lot of synergies, a way of looking at customers differently through key accounts. Uh, but, But I was waiting to go back into a general manager assignment. It was meant to be a two to three year assignment, and I was at the two and a half year point and kind of feeling like a lot of things were in place. And as I said, looking for the next thing. And I think uh, my boss at that time, knowing me pretty well and wanting to keep me occupied enough that I wouldn't get myself in trouble, suggested that I think about an external board. I had talked to board um, recruiters in the past and you know, generally they had said, well, you have a great uh, background in general management, P&L management, but you haven't done a C-suite type of thing where you're influencing across the organization, having impact broadly across the organization. Doing the chief marketing officer stint at the corporate level allowed me to fill that gap. So when he suggested thinking about a, a public board, I thought that, okay, this makes sense. I probably have all the right qualifications. Let me think about that. And he was kind enough to make some introductions to recruiters. And I also made some calls on my own. And luckily, over just a couple of months, this is unusual, but I think it it was definitely, as you know, sometimes just being in the right place at the right right time. I ran into a recruiter who had two opportunities, both in the the instrumentation 
space, uh, industrial instrumentation space. And for one of those companies, they were looking, I mean, when they started talking, I read the spec and heard from the recruiter what they were looking for. It just happened to check beautifully with my skills and experience because they said they wanted three key things, life science background, because they were trying to you know, diversify from industrial to life science, right. commercial background, and international business background. And so here I was having been at a life science company, just having done a huge commercial stint and always having worked in global companies. So I was very lucky that that worked out and I served on that board for seven years. It was my only board, I was still working at that time and I learned so much uh, about how to be, I think a good board member, it was a learning exercise, but also how to have impact. And what is interesting is that many years later, I, I had to leave that board because of a conflict when I changed jobs. Uh, and um, later in my career, the, the CEO of the company, who was also chairman of the board, actually recruited me to work with him at a different company. So small world, but uh, tells you you can have an impact. Right, right. It's a great story. And, you know, um, as we talk with mutual friends, other board members and, and other aspiring board members, which we'll talk about in a little while, you know, you do have to work it. I mean, you kind of got lucky you were right place, right time. But you have to put yourself out there and make it known to key influencers, not just recruiters, but CEOs, other C-suite people, people in your network that you're really looking for board service. And, and my perspective has always been when you're that, you know, star C-suite executive or, or high potential in a large company, I think doing outside board service is usually formative for the role that you're in, let alone on the outside as well. Would you say that that was Absolutely true was true. You know, a lot of people ask me why some of my peers within and without the company, why are you doing this? Isn't this taking time away from your, you know, day-to-day -day job? And I was able to very clearly talk about the, I think the benefits for me and for the company that I was working at, you know, board service is so different from your day-to-day -day executive uh, experience. You are looking at things from generally 30,000 feet, looking tops down as opposed to bottoms up. And you're thinking hard about how the board thinks, investors think, customers think at a high level. Um, you're thinking about many stakeholders that frankly, day to day, you just don't have time to think about. And, and again, you're deep in strategy. You know, when you're in the PL position, you're writing the strategy stuff and having a lot of discussions around it, but you're so in the weeds that sometimes you know, you just kind of forget the bigger picture. And so again, the board service really forces you to think about the bigger picture, uh, not just for today, but for three years, five years, even 10 years out. So it was a huge formative experience, as you said, both for my day-to-day -day, um, uh, uh, job and, and certainly for where I wanted to go into the future in my career. Um, so, and, and I just wanted to also just stress what you said. I mentioned recruiters because it was the way that I got in. But, you know, I have learned since then that in the world of, of networking, you know, a lot of board positions are still still filled through the board themselves, boards and executive members themselves. So you're right. It is critical to network and let everyone in your in your, you know, uh, field, your realm of, of connection really know what you're interested in, why you think you would uh, you would make a good member for that the type of company you're interested in well and we we actually see it both ways ruby it's a really interesting point you know some of our board clients you know completely you know want us to run a soup to nut search process and others will say 
you know, we have this crop of 8, 10, 12. We're doing two projects like this right now, actually, where they've given us essentially a list. You know, we may augment their list or we may just do a complete assessment of their list, but they've kind of pre-done it. And there's a little bit still of sometimes I think, you know, we, we, we really don't want to be more than one degree of separation from people on the board in some cases. It's still, a, I think, a comfort thing. On the other hand, sometimes to, to build more diverse boards or to get more diverse skill sets, you need to go some different places than you always went before, right? So I think board succession is an, uh, seems to be an evolving dynamic these days, but evolving yes. pretty rapidly. I, I do like, though, the fact that mo I would say most boards, if not all boards today, are running a professional process in the sense that even if they give you a list or give you a name, they are looking for usually a search firm to, to assess all the candidates and use very, um, you know, consistent right. methods of, of uh, vetting the candidates, vetting the references. So I do think that that is maybe somewhat different than, you know, 20 years ago. But I agree with you that to get the, particularly the diversity, people are really, you know, scanning their own lists, everybody sure. else's lists, lists recruiters lists, because um, you do have to look a little differently than you did before. And I do think that, you know, there's that objectivity um, that is really important if a client has kind of a, a semi-short list. And the other thing is, there's a lot of sensitivity sometimes. This name came from the lead director. This name came from the CEO. This name came from another board member. And if we're involved in that, we don't care about any of that, right? We just objectify and professionalize the whole process, you know, so that, you know, it gets a little bit less political. But, but I want to stay with one theme here, Ruby, about you, which is, you know, you were running billion-dollar-plus businesses, you were running marketing for massive companies, and yet at some point you said, I just want to do board service full-time and give up an operating role. So why did you choose to do that? And tell me a little bit about that transition from being in charge to overseeing the people in charge, because everyone I've talked to that's done what you've done always says that first board or that first transition year, it's tough because you're used to jumping in and, you know, managing or, or directing versus <laughs> oversight as a board member. Talk a little bit about that for you. Sure, sure. You know, well, I got my, my best learning experience of transitioning from, uh, you know, your executive hands-on role to that board oversight role really was with that first board. And I was still working at that, working for many years after I got on that first board. Um, it, you know, it was a, a company that was about just a, a billion and a half in revenue and a small board, just seven people. So that it actually turned out to be great to have such a small board because we were very, very connected and very interactive, lots of discussion. And, you know, where I learned the most was through a mentor. I was on the nominating and governance committee with the lead uh, director and um and beyond, you know, the work we did for nominating and governance, he was, we, we just got to know each other really well, small, it was a small committee. And he was somebody I could bounce things off. And so, especially for the first year, but maybe even the first couple of years, after a board meeting, I'd kind of say to him, you know, Neil, how, how did I do? Was I talking too much, too little? And he gave me a lot of advice, especially on, the, on situations where maybe I had gone too deep. <laughs> you know, kind of forgotten that boundary a little bit. You know, he said it was great. You were giving a lot of good input, but at some point you you kind of realize that you're there to advise and oversee and it's for the executives to do. So, you know, you really need to back off at some point, give them your input, but then 
back, you know, back up a little bit. So having those discussions with him as a, as an informal mentor, you know, I think really taught me about that quite well. So that when I did stop full-time uh, executive work and transition to, to um, board portfolio service, it wasn't a hard transition at that time. And the reason I decided to do that, as you said, I had a lot of great experiences at, at uh, very, very uh, good companies and had learned a lot. And I was at the point where, uh, when my last company, Paul uh, Corporation, got acquired by Danaher, I stayed on to help with the transition, but I had been clear through the process that I felt it was time to do something a little different, you know, just working, whether it was for Danaher or for some other company uh, running divisions, you know, I felt it was time to do something else. I thought hard and uh, networked and tried to find the right CEO position. But my family had a lot of location uh, constraints. You know, we had to be along certain cities in the East Coast. Uh, and that just didn't, you know, I, I got great opportunities in Cleveland and <laughs> the Southwest and the Southeast, but uh, given family constraints, couldn't do that. And, you know, again, a recruiter actually helped me to get comfortable with the transition by asking me, what, what really drives you? You know, you've done well and you're obviously driven, but what it, what are you driven for? And it sounds obvious, but I think when you're on that ladder, you know, going up, you don't necessarily think hard about that. You're just going for the next rung and the next rung and the next rung. So when I really thought hard about that, I realized that, you know, for me, it wasn't so much about, you know, being a CEO to have the power or even the compensation. I think for me, it was just my usual mode of I need to learn something new. I need to do something that's new. And hey, I haven't been a CEO before, so that will be new. Um, and, and then when I thought hard about, okay, what else could I do given my location constraints? I thought, you know, I, I talked to a lot of people and found a lot of people and a lot of women in particular who loved the fact that they could be on various things involved with public boards, private boards, community service, you name it, um, entrepreneurship. Um, and I thought, wow. I go from doing one new thing to doing many, many new things. And that's how I made the transition. And I have to say, I'm, I'm quite happy with it. I'm involved, as you said, with board service, private equity work, hopefully a lot of community service giving back, when I, for, which I didn't have as much time before. So it's been a, a great mix. And being back in Philadelphia has been a great, great uh, thing for me as well. It's awesome. So you've been on corporate boards for over a decade now, I think. Um, a lot has changed and a lot has changed in the last 12, 18, 24 months too. What stands out to you as sort of the biggest things that are different today in terms of boardroom focus for maybe when you started your board service? And I'm sure there's a million answers <laughs> to that question, but, but what's really jumping out at you right now that boards are focusing on that wasn't on the radar screen a decade ago? Yeah, you know, it's interesting what you said. I've been on boards for over 15 years, and I would say the first 12 to 13, you know, had one one set of trends, and the last <laughs> two years have been totally different. Well, let me jump into what's different. Well, first of all, we all went through the pandemic, and the pandemic, you know, both during the course of the pandemic and now afterwards, really raised the focus on everything from enterprise risk management you know, not only the fact that like what is really a black swan event like COVID could hit us, but the global scale and the global impact and so many different functions that wasn't anticipated and was not fully understood until we went through it. 
And so even though you can't always anticipate what's coming, it really made the need for a very, very robust enterprise risk management process clear. Also, logistics and supply chain, important functions that always have a big picture uh, space within companies. But boy, again, the pandemic forced us to understand shocks to the global supply chain and logistics network that, again, were just not anticipated. I think companies were maybe in a little bit of a good shape because they had focused on this area when the tariffs of the last administration were put in place. But at that time, they were trying to hedge tariffs and cost increases and were more thinking about moving to other low-cost regions. But with the pandemic, it went from, you know, everything from shortages of equipment, you know, and PPE equipment, ventilators, oxygen, to chip issues, to force majeures due to everything from the pandemic to weather. Uh, And then what we're still struggling through, which is a, a global shortage of logistics capacity. I mean, companies are really, really straining in this area, you know, using air freight to make up for what they would usually put on a on a on a ship transport and and so on. Um, And of course, there's a labor shortage now. So that affects even truck uh, traffic. So, you know, people are adding a lot of expertise, people in companies, a lot of expertise, a lot of people, much more cost to try to make up for these shortages. Uh, But particularly with the recovering economy, I think it's, you know, we're going to be behind the eight ball for longer. But other things that really took up space during mental uh, space and energy during COVID, health and safety practices. Uh, Of course, those were, that was big during the pandemic. But I think in some industries, think about airlines, for example, probably much of that will stay in in place to make uh, customers and clients comfortable, even just practical meeting practices, right? Uh, you know, closing the books with uh, virtually or having strategy, you know, summits virtually. So thinking hard about everything from how to create, a, maintain your culture, create a culture or maintain your culture to keeping on top of health and safety to the financial ramifications of everything I mentioned. Now that's just COVID. Right. And in addition <laughs> to about, that- That's a lot. That's a lot. And then in addition to that, just by, you know, because of, again, the last two years, uh, worldwide global trends changing. First of all, there was Me Too, probably two, two and a half, three years ago. That started to be a big focus. And then last summer, George Floyd and everything that that raised in terms of social justice and equality. Um, So that added a whole other level of thinking about gender diversity, ethnicity diversity, you know, development of people, get, bringing people in, are we looking at the right sources, as you mentioned earlier? Um, so just as that was, you know, sort of taking up a lot of mental space, um, all of a sudden, something that we've all known about and probably worried about for quite a bit of time, suddenly took on a much larger uh, importance as major investors started to focus on it, which was the growing impact of ESG issues. So, you know, that probably started a number of years ago in environmental, especially with chemical and energy companies focused on that, but the effects of climate change and and also the focus on diversity has now morphed the focus on ESG into a more holistic sustainability focus. So first, the, the fact that companies are worried about what their investors think but also the investors are now focusing not just on shareholders, but on the 360 view of stakeholders, which is everything from customers to employees, to your suppliers, to your communities, as well as investors. 
you know, so now I tell you, my companies, they're all publishing sustainability reports, which may not have been the case a couple of years ago. For they're sure. stating their mission, their philosophies around sustainability, their plans for to, to what they want to achieve by 2030 and 2050, their metrics, you know, and um, and people are really looking hard, all those stakeholders at these reports and at the metrics and and even in some cases, ranking companies and and taking votes, you know, against uh, committees or companies when they feel that that work isn't being done. So, Alan, I have to tell you, in the history of board service, this this may be a unique time in terms of how many very very important trends and therefore changing focuses are happening in the boardroom. And I've had some clients actually say to your point. Um, that their boards were having weekly, if not in some periods of time, daily or every other day, updates at you know seven or eight a.m. with the board and the CEO during the sort of you know early height of the pandemic, you know March, April, May last year. I don't know whether any of your boards were definitely you know, weekly. Yeah, weekly. I, I, perhaps more you know at certain points, but uh, definitely weekly. So you can think about for. Uh, CEO and his team, his or her team, how that would impact them, you know, in terms of not only doing the work, but making sure the frequency of communication and the, and the uh, fact that the data was, was, you know, fresh off the press right, uh, right. and was being communicated that way. Yeah, no, definitely weekly meetings for a very long time. So when you went on your, your first corporate board, I think, was that IDEX? IDEX Corporation and out of Chicago area. Were you one of the few women on that board or? I was the only woman on that board. Actually, I was the only woman on the board for seven years. Just as I was leaving the board, the, the, the second woman came on. I think we overlapped. We, I'm not sure if we overlapped for a meeting, but we overlapped for the process of bringing her in. But since then, as you know, I mean, just recently, it was reported that every S&P uh, company has at least one female board member. About time. Yeah, about time. And uh, now the focus is on a second and, and ideally a third. Right. Um, and also the focus is now on, on having similar trends within the race and ethnicity That's right. um, That's right. area as well. It does feel to me today that there's a much higher level of sincerity in corporate America and in boardrooms around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Not that companies didn't care about it before or care about it in the boardroom, but it feels like it's 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 become a lot more ingrained into thinking in a way that's going to last versus, again, I'm trying to choose my words carefully. It didn't always feel that it was that, um, there was that much sincerity around. It was a little more check the box-ish in, check the box-ish in some companies in the past. How would you respond to that? I would, I would give you two answers. One is that you are right. There is no question, I've said this in many webinars that I've spoken on, there is no question that in the last two to three years, it feels very different. I think, this is my opinion, may not be everybody's opinion, but I think when Me Too happened and then the George Floyd incident, that, that some of that those examples, not just George Floyd, but many examples that came out last summer, as well as some of the Me Too experiences, were so visceral, perhaps, uh, that that you know people who are in high positions on boards or in companies could kind of feel it being real. What if that were my 
daughter or what if that were my friend, you know. So again, that's my opinion that it that it being more visceral made it uh, more, as you said, it, it struck people that no, this cannot stand and we have to be part of doing something about it. Um, and I also think the investors, again, you know, uh, something has changed in the last two to three years, whether it's BlackRock or Vanguard or State Street, you can name any number of, of big investors. They have really taken a leadership voice on some of these things, including publishing their own metrics. And by the way, admitting that they are not sometimes meeting their own targets, but being very clear that this is important and they're going to watch it closely. So it does feel very different. Now, my second answer to you was going to be, as you said, while that might have been the overall feeling, there were some companies that took this very seriously. And I was lucky enough to work for a couple of them. Uh, I'll name one that is close to Philadelphia's heart, and that was Roman Haas. Of I know course. you know Raj Gupta and others. I know Raj. And you know, the reason I came to Roman Haas, because I wasn't planning to leave Boston. I had been there since college. You know, I, I figured I would work and <laughs> retire there. But the reason I moved was because when I visited for my interviews, Roman Haas, I just couldn't believe the diversity of the senior team. And by the senior team, I mean both the C-suite and the top 40 um, executives in the company. I mean, there were more women in PL positions than at any company I was even aware of in the industrial world. Uh, and there were women of, excuse me, there were executives of so many different races and ethnicities and geographies. Uh, it was very well represented. And I just felt like, wow, I haven't seen this and I wanna know how they do it and I want to, learn how they do it. And honestly, it wasn't when the, the position was great and I love the people I met, but I don't think those alone would have moved me. It was really seeing something so new. I mean, Raj, you know, had a COO who was French and a, a CFO who was French Canadian and a CIO who was an Irish woman. And as I said, the top 40, there were at least 10 women in it um, with six or seven of them running P&Ls, which is unusual even today. Well, particularly in a, in a manufacturing or chemical industry company, you know, right. even more so than, you know, in some other industry. Well, Raj is, I, I'm fortunate to know Raj. He's an incredible CEO and leader. And of course, he led by example um, in the Roman Haas um, situation. And, you know, it, there's a kind of a modern day parallel when you think about the not very large number of companies. It's less than 10% of the S&P, but that are led by a woman CEO like General Motors. Um, and a few other companies, and the number of women on those boards, the number of diverse board members in those companies is much higher because it's not a middle-aged white man who's sitting in the CEO <laughs> chair. I mean, it's... it's it does could, seem to happen somewhat naturally when there is a woman or or an ethnic minority in charge, because I saw it happen in my groups. I, I never went out of my way to say it First of all, it was many years ago. So, you know, I wasn't going out there and saying, look, we have to hire a woman or we have to hire, you know, somebody of, of this ethnicity. But um, but somehow I know that in almost every company I worked at, you know, within a few years, let's say two to five years, the group would look quite diverse. And I think it was because I focused, I did focus a lot on saying we need diversity of experience. We need people who've been in the industry a short time, industry a long time, other industries. Uh, we need people who, uh, uh, with with Eric on the line, people, excuse me, Ben on the line, you know, people who did marketing in consumer goods. Right. Uh, we need people from different geographies. So 
Uh, you know, even today when people say, why is it so important to have diversity? I tend to go there first. You want the diversity of thought, the diversity of experience, the diversity of how people approach issues and problems. Sure. And yes, does that translate into gender and race and ethnicity and geography? Yeah, sure. But look most of all for that difference in thought. And to your point, if you have all similar people, whatever kind of similar people they are, you are a little bit just committing to, you know, groupthink. <laughs> right, absolutely. And we we actually talk with a lot of our clients about that. You know, there's a natural tendency to hire people that are like us. They have a similar background, you know, similar skill sets, all those kind of things, whether it's an unconscious bias, it doesn't have to be race or gender related, it could be an unconscious bias around skills like I, I was a successful salesperson, so I want people who did sales. And I think, you know, it's really important to build strong organizations to have lots of diverse ways of thinking and skill sets and perspectives and backgrounds and looking at all that. So I, I, I give you credit for what you what you did probably before a lot of other people were thinking about it. Um, I do have, I have one more quick question for you. Sure. Um, I know you're involved with the National Association, National Association of Corporate Directors, as I am as well. Some of our clients are very oriented towards continuing education. Some of them, particularly some of our small cap clients, you know, don't really focus as much on it. What's your view and what are you seeing today in requirements for continuing education for public company directors? Well, you know, I, from everything we've talked about, just the fact that the world is changing so rapidly, uh, I think for directors to really stay up to date, understand current trends, understand most importantly current best practices, um, it is it is absolutely mandatory to keep up through continuing education. Now that could be, you know, I happen like probably you, Ellen, to think that the most efficient way are groups like NACD or even, uh, for example, other groups I'm involved with, Women Corporate Directors or Ascend Pinnacle, which is for Asian and Pacific sure. Islander board uh, work. But but again, those are efficient, you know, because they either have courses or they have webinars. Again, I can tell you that in the last two years, I have been attending so many more events and webinars, virtually in most cases, of course. all cases, <laughs> uh, than, I, than I did in the previous years, because again, things are changing so much. Uh, and, and people are giving really, really good presentations and thought um, events. You know, so if you want to deep dive into diversity and inclusion, or you want to deep dive into logistics and supply chain, or, hey, how does, I'm on a, I'm on one of the groups within NACD for the nominating and governance committees, you know. So whether it's a committee work or board work or functional things you want to be more uh, more up to speed on, you know, those are efficient ways to do it. Now, beyond that, you could certainly, there's a lot of reading out there. I mean, someone took, I think in a webinar yesterday, I heard something like 30,000 business books are published annually. <laughs> that just rocked my mind. So, of course, you can keep up to date through reading and networking. Uh, but I do believe that NACD in particular, just because of its breadth across uh, many topics and its ex expertise and expert um, centers, you know, are, are, is an efficient way to do it. But I... I would urge board directors to to really commit to continuing education, particularly at this time and this point. Great, great. Well, this has been an unbelievable conversation, Ruby, and I want to thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and a bit of your story with us as well. Um, 
You have been listening to the Talent Pool Podcast. I'm Alan Kaplan, your host, founder and CEO of Kaplan Partners. If you'd like to learn more about our firm or these podcasts, visit kaplanpartners.com. Thanks so much for joining us. Mm-hmm.